You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker, we have Jonathan Anderson, co-founder and CEO at CanDo. And in this episode, we'll mostly talk about fundraising, on the early stages and also about the difference uh, between what happens in the pre-seed stage and on the seed stage. So what to expect after you raise a pre-seed round versus what to expect after you raise the seed round. So Jonathan, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on CanDo. Amazing. Yeah, I'm Jonathan Anderson, a co-founder of CanDo. Uh, CanDo is a way for non-developers, people who can't code like me, to make web components that you can add into an existing web page or a web app. Uh, and my background's really coming from the world of uh, working in SaaS businesses, um, on the usually on the customer side. So like everything from client services to professional services, uh, sales ops, sales engineering. I've, <laughs> if you can wear the hat, I've tried to wear it. Uh, at a SaaS company. Um, and what I've always wanted to do was uh, be able to create uh, user experiences myself. So without having to go through the engineering team. And that is what can do is sets out to do. Nice. Some rhyming there. Appreciate the rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, can do sounds really fun. I personally took a look at it and it does look really good, especially for non-tech people like me or Jonathan here. So first question actually is about what I saw on the website. So the first thing I saw was the pricing. And for me personally, not even like here, it, it felt a little bit too high. So my question is, how did you arrive at that pricing? So how long did you try uh, you know, different options there? Did you change it based on the feedback? Did you change it based on the uh, actions of users? Or how exactly did you arrive at that number? Yeah, really good question. And I should say that we're still tinkering with our pricing. We actually are going to have a, um, what I would call our no code enthusiast price coming soon. So keep your eye out for that, um, which is really for those like sole proprietors or AEs that have, um, that work with some smaller shops. Um, but yeah, we're really designed for SaaS businesses that are at a certain size and scale. So like series A plus um, up through series D is, is usually kind of our bread and butter. And the simplest way that I've thought about pricing is uh, what does your buyer already think about when they think about you? Um, so we're actually a really good match for um, folks who are looking at, say, Intercom um, for their standard plans. Um, we don't do the same thing that Intercom does. They do pop-ups. We do uh, in tours. We create the web page itself. But it's a mental model that someone um, who would be looking to buy, who would looking to be purchasing Intercom for their company, that's how they would think about it. Um, so it's a simple way for us mm -hmm. to, um, how do you say, jump into the mindset of kind of the buyer. Um, it's just to find a, a more established company that's done more research than you or I have done and uh, take. <laughs> so it's not more complicated than that. Nice. Yeah. On your student. Yeah. Good, good luck figuring out the exact price that you will keep for ages. <laughs> um, so first question now is about fundraising. So we'll start from the bottom and go all the way up to this stage where you're at right now. So first question, you've, uh, you've graduated from an accelerator. Uh, mm -hmm. What's your major takeaway from that experience? Oh my goodness. It was the, uh, you know, the, the concept of a swift kick in the butt, uh, joining an accelerator is basically like you're getting kicked off a cliff. And then you're trying to, you know, build the airplane on your way down. I'm mixing a lot of metaphors, but it's it's fine. Um, it the most important thing about an accelerator 
um, especially the one that I went through entrepreneur first, um, was that it really gave me the space and time to actually devote myself like 100% to this idea that I had, which is that I wanted to start a company or that I thought I could build a product people would want to use. Um, it's not enough time to start a company. It is not enough time to, um, to do all the stuff that you want to do, but, uh, it gives, I think people like me, the, like the mental space to like actually go for it. Um, which is more important than you might think. It is very important. Um, accelerators do have a lot of upsides and I personally always recommend, especially every single founder who's going to his or her first venture, I always recommend going to an accelerator, especially if they think they know a lot. Most likely that means that they, they are definitely going to make some stupid mistakes. So yeah, accelerators are great for that. But also, they do have a lot of downsides. So for you personally, what do you think was like the worst part of the accelerator or the thing that you would love accelerators to change in their models or <laughs> their approach to founders? Yeah, um, I mean, I think... There's this idea in accelerators that there's like a, this, this timeline about where you should be at different stages. And that's actually really helpful for helping you basically make progress. But very often making progress in a company that is product led or product driven is not at all linear. Like you have to like continually trace your steps back and say, okay, wait, one of my assumptions was wrong. Um, so the idea of a startup is actually really simple. It's that you have this like bundle of ideas where you think the world should be, but for some reason it isn't there yet. And all you're trying to do is basically put together the pieces to, to basically create this world. The problem with that is that you're pretty much always like completely wrong. Uh, your great idea has some pitfall that you haven't thought about yet. Um, and so with the accelerator, it often feels like you're like moving linearly like down a tube, uh, but it's actually much more like a maze. Um, and so I think a really important part of being an accelerator is you know, even though you have these like, okay, how many proof of concepts do you have? How many like, uh, you know, how much product progress have you made? Is to like take a step back and say like, what did I learn? Uh, that's actually a way more important metric, but not as easy to boast about. Right, that's very true. So speaking of uh, the ups and downs of accelerators, uh, how do you actually choose the ones that, the one that you went to eventually? So. Do you just apply to pretty much every single accelerator in your city or were you actually like carefully choosing those? Yeah, I was living in London uh, and it's, it, in my view, the best one in London. So I, <laughs> for me, it was pretty simple. Also, I didn't have a co-founder. So Entrepreneur First is unique in that you show up as a person uh, with you know a certain skill set, uh, dangerous skills potentially. And you're then looking to match with someone else and create an idea from there. So it was the right kind of stage mm -hmm. for me as a person. Um, but I also think, I do think that accelerators for better or worse have network or like micro network effects. Um, and so if you want your startup to be the best, then you need to find the best network effect in your geography. And that's actually really important because it gives your startup the best chance of surviving. Absolutely. And are you based in the US right now or still in the UK? Uh, yeah, we kind of split the baby in half. So my co-founder, uh, Michele lives in London and that's actually where most of our engineering team is in, in Europe. Uh, and then I live in Los Angeles. Uh, my husband actually also started a company, uh, a weed soda, uh, called cannabis. Nice. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, microdose, uh, cannabis, uh, beverage. And to do that, he had to be in Los Angeles. So I had to choose between two different partners and I chose my personal life. And now we have a remote company which seemed completely crazy at the time and is now <laughs> live. 
Great. And by the way, Los Angeles is definitely a great pick. Just like <laughs> this, this episode that I was recording like two hours ago, we were discussing how great LA is and how we're bullish on it. <laughs> so a uh, good choice. So, so question is, did yeah. the accelerator, uh, UK based accelerator, were they okay with you, you know, splitting the team and uh, one of the co-founders going outside of the UK and going to the United States? Uh, no. Uh, so, <laughs> so yeah, so I actually lived apart from my husband while I was in the accelerator and going through that initial like fundraising process. Uh, and, but it actually ended up working out quite well because for better or worse, America, specifically California, specifically San Francisco is still like, it is still the, the best place to start a company in terms of finding, mm -hmm. customers, finding investors. Like I know we, as someone like I'm from Northern California, I wish this were not the case. I started a company in London. And I have to say, it's just, it is just easier uh, to do that in um, the heart of Silicon Valley. And that might not be true as much anymore, especially with the, how COVID has really transformed our lives. Um, but even though, for example, like we met our, you know, uh, part of our seed investors over Zoom, it didn't hurt that I was, you know, from a town next door um, and could speak the kind of the language. Um, and so now actually I think of my job mostly is arbitrage, where I try to find customers and Silicon Valley dollars and then pay out to a remote workforce that's spread across the globe. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice approach. Like it. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the major topic of discussion for this episode, which is discussion between, I mean, uh, discussion of the differences between the pre-seed and seed stages and specifically what are you supposed to do right after you raise those money? So let's start with the pre-seed. What did you do right after you closed your pre-seed round? Oh man. Uh, I would actually think of it as the time before and the time after, because the time before is a really hard period. Uh, we had, I think, right. 80 no's, uh, which is, I guess, a little on the high side. We're in a, we're in a hot market, um, which actually means that there's more competitors out there. Yeah. Um, we raised roughly, um, uh, you know, uh, over just over a million dollars. And that was really hard to do. <laughs> um, it's just two people. You're, you know, you're like, this is how the world is. I have nothing to show for it. Um, you know, t place a bet on me, and we just met. Um, it's really hard. Um, in many ways, I found that the seed stage was a lot easier because even though uh, we were, you know, you're still basically raising on a dream. At least you have a little bit of a team together. At least you have a, like a product that someone can poke at or design someone can poke at. And at least you're clear at that point because you've given your pitch so many damn times by that point. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you're talking about. And that makes a really big difference. Right. And what about the actions right after the uh, the fundraising? So, you know, let's say first two weeks after you raise the pre-seed versus the first two weeks after you raise the seed round. Uh, the first two weeks. Well, first of all, like, what is it? What does that closing even mean? Is that money in the in the bank? Uh, yes, <laughs> in the bank where you can actually already spend the money that you've oh, got. Yeah, from yeah. yeah, in most cases, you've already started to spend the money because you already have <laughs> to find the people that you need to raise the money. So um, it's very catch twenty two. Um, you can get stuck in these little loops where, like, an uh, investor will say, "Okay, I'm comfortable, but I'm not quite sure if we're there yet. Here's what I need to see." Um, which means you go spend the money and then they don't necessarily come in. Um, and so I think that's mm -hmm. when you get stuck in these kind of traps. Um, it's much more dangerous, by the way, in the world of when you have inventory. Uh, I've seen it with my husband's company and many of his colleagues, um, just because you have to do these large capital outlays. Software is a little bit safer because you are just paying for headcount and you can always just not pay yourself for a while, yeah. um, which is what uh, Michaeliana has to do at the beginning. Um, but yeah, so the first thing I did is I... If I'm being completely honest, the first thing I did is I like renewed my uh, 
let's see, I, I paid off my credit card. <laughs> Fair enough. Mental wellness of the founders is important and having too much debt on the credit card definitely does not help that. So good choice, good good way of spending the, the initial money. So uh, what about now? What What's your major focus now? So, you know, day to day, what's your thing that you think about all the time was your like big goal to move to the next stage basically yeah um so i've heard that um there are different things that you need to basically de-risk as the startup gets bigger right so at the very beginning it's like is this the right market to be in and then maybe it's like is this vision make sense and then maybe it's is this you know are we building the right product do we have the right um initial wedge um and then it's you know how are people using the product uh is it like, what are those use cases? And then it's, can you build a repeatable, you know, uh, either product-led or sales-led um, uh, funnel? Um, and of course, it kind of scales up from there. Uh, so given our stage, we have, you know, our closed our seed round, um, we're really in the midst of trying to find product market fit. So we have some early users, we have some early paying customers, they're building some cool stuff. Where's the pattern? Um, how do I make that, how do I make it easier and easier to get more and more accounts, sign up, create something with candy that's valuable um, and then, you know, uh, be able to demonstrate that impact on their users. Um, so that for me is really the, the key of it. How do we turn on the product led funnel? Mm hmm. Right. Right. So uh, that's that's very accurate. Pretty broad, though. <laughs> so uh, what do you think will get you to that series A stage? So you've already raised the seed round and now, I mean, you're working your way to raise that seed. I mean, Series A round. So, what do you think? Are there several metrics that you have to hit, or is there a certain big milestone that you're trying to get to, or what? What's that thing that's going to tell you, okay, go raise the Series A? Yeah, this is such a good question. The, basically, the the rule of thumb with there there are these rules of thumb with Series A, like you have to beat a certain revenue target or a certain usage target. Um, I think those are kind of garbage, but I do think that a more helpful way to think about it is. A Series A investor is making a bet on being able to scale up a product market, uh, your um, your go-to-market, right? And so for them, mm -hmm. one of three stories. Um, the first story is one of usage. Are you getting lots and lots and lots of usage? Especially consumer-facing companies, this is very important. And do those users love the product? That's a really, really important sign for them. Um, the second story that they have might be around... Um, uh, paying customers, right? Even if they're paying you almost nothing, uh, are there? Are you able to attract customers at the right cost to acquire? Um, especially in, I would say, the uh, the world of um, uh, consumer goods, this is really important, right? Uh, do you have an initial sense of how much it costs to acquire? Um, and then the final world is actually one of more in the enterprise space of logos. Are you able to work with like best in breed type companies that other companies will see as social proof that your product works? Um, and I think it's actually really, really, really helpful to, to realize that you don't need all three stories to be true. Actually, you probably can't get all three stories to be true. That's just impossible. There just aren't that many companies that have managed to do that. Maybe Slack, maybe. Um, your job is to find out what is the narrative and then to build the evidence around that narrative. Does that make sense? It's, it's, a, it's less around being uh, having to hit all the metrics and more around finding out what's your lane and then performing well mm -hmm. in that. Yeah, absolutely. Makes complete total sense. So is there anything else you would love to add on, uh, you know, how to get to Series A or, you know, how to get from zero to Series A, especially for those early stage founders? Well, again, I haven't hit really hit Series We did a We did a 5 million seed, uh, which I guess 
or it's called a mango C because it's a big, it's a big C, uh-huh. uh, which is not, te- we're not technically calling a series A. So when I get to series A, I'll let you know how. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. So for now, then my next question is about, uh, and so, you know, getting into series A, getting into the big publishers. So for example, um, how we discovered our uh, one of our team members, Louis, by the way, his name is. He discovered you by reading an article on TechCrunch, I believe, and then he just reached out to you. And here we are recording the episode. So, question is, how did you manage to get on TechCrunch? Oh, the, the magical inner workings of uh, of press. Um, I again, I can't claim to have cracked this puzzle. Uh, we have worked. We worked with a PR agency uh, to do so um, through one of our investors. And the way to kind of think about it is like uh, seed investments now are kind of a dime a dozen. There's a lot of them, um, which is not to say there are not, they're easy to get, they're not. Uh, but there's a lot of them. So reporters don't find them quite as newsworthy as they used to. Um, so it's actually kind of important to think through what is the story that you're trying to tell um, that would be interesting based on maybe the space that you're in. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of it, and we, again, got help with our, um, through our PR agency to do this. Um, but really it was trying to think through, uh, what is the, if I could distill down how the world will be different now that can do exists. And in our case, it's that non-developers can literally build UI, right? Like that's a big change. It's a big tension that's going to exist. organizations. So, okay. If that's the tension that exists, what's the narrative there? Um, oh, the narrative is. There was some investment to, um, from choosing ventures and CRV to basically enable this new world. But it's also that like people's jobs are going to change, right? If you're doing front end engineering tasks to like add buttons to a page, that job is going to be done now by someone in a drag and drop editor. So that's a different flavor of software that's really going to transform how we think about it. Um, another good example is that we do this like dynamic personalization. So like if a user comes in and they're like an admin and a different user is say a new user coming in, uh, we can actually show them really different experiences in the same URL, on the same page. And that's kind of a crazy idea too. Like you and I can be looking at the same piece of software and have, and have fundamentally different user experiences. So that's kind of a cool twist on how the way the world works. And that's what a, um, someone who works at a, at a, like a TechCrunch would find more interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. So now I'm interested in that PR agency. How exactly did yeah. they help? Did they reveal any of their secrets or they were like, okay, we're going to do our best. And then if we connect you, we connect you. If not, then not. Oh yeah. Such a good question. So, uh, they were helpful for, first of all, they have the contacts, which is very helpful. Um, so they can help you basically source the interviews. Um, they're also really good about thinking about what is newsworthy and what's a good story. Um, so they can help you kind of craft that messaging quite a bit. Um, and we worked with our uh, we worked with our lead investor, Two Sigma Ventures, to do some of this because they also wrote an investment thesis on us. Uh, so they had a pretty strong point of view uh, for why Candu was an interesting is an interesting company. Um, and one other tip I would say for press is that um, it's also really helpful if you have some kind of uh, launch event, like for example on Product Hunt would be a good example. Or potentially through like AppSumo or one of these other kind of um, I'd call them like marketing playgrounds. Um, and it's also really helpful if you tie in your press announcement to other newsletters. So it's not just the TechCrunch article; it's also the product launch. Launch. It's also the newsletters, and that's what kind of creates the what do you call it, the reverberation kind of effect, where 
people start talking about it and that's really what makes it um, a more valuable like launch. Absolutely, that sounds interesting. And now I feel like I need to bring someone from TechCrunch or other big publisher to understand that thing because I'm just always interested in that part and I never understood it, like never ever, how the hell can you get in there? <laughs> Anyhow, you got me to think about this question and I promise everyone I will bring someone from TechCrunch or similar publishing agency. So on this positive note on my end, at least, <laughs> we're moving on to the last question of today's episode. So it's a call to action. Jonathan, what is the last, I mean, the one thing that you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over? Oh my goodness. I want them to go to our website, CANDU, uh, C-A-N-D-U dot A-I, uh, and check us out. I would love you to, you know, create your, create your own user experience in 20 minutes. You know, use a drag and drop editor. You've gone, you've, maybe you've tried development, maybe you are a developer, maybe you've been waiting on a developer and they ha haven't gotten back to you. Uh, yeah, make, make an onboarding checklist, make, a, you know, make an announcement bar, make a, a welcome message, whatever is to your heart's content. Um, and yeah, and do it without coding a line. Absolutely, that is very accurate. Uh, Jonathan on our pre-interview call showed me how it works and it is very impressive. Even I, who absolutely hate most of the technology, understood the whole thing perfectly. So uh, I'll make sure to leave a link to CanDo in the description of this episode. So my call to action is gonna be go to the description of this episode, check it out. And by the way, I'll make sure to leave the link to TechCrunch article on CanDo so that you understand what exactly they covered in that piece of writing. And uh, maybe I will, I will also leave a link to Jonathan's LinkedIn and yeah, if you need some some additional you know, questions to be asked, uh, I'm saying, I mean answered, talk to him or you can pay me. Yeah, you can always find my content information somewhere on our website. It should be there. So yeah, that's gonna be my call to action. Check out the description of this episode. A lot of helpful stuff that will be there as always. So do that and as usually have a good day.